Welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 117. My name is Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. Well, this week I've been checking out Need for Speed Unbound as a racing game from Criterion and EA. I've also been going back to some games I missed or fell off from, including Hitman 3 and getting back into Elden Ring. I'm also looking ahead to later on this year with Diablo 4, and that arrives later in June, as well as looking at a short history of secrets in Destiny 2. So as always, it is a busy show, so let's get to it. Now, welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're well and you're having a good week. Yeah, I'm good this week, and we've started 2023 in a relatively slow manner. When it comes to video game releases, we've not had too many so far, or any that have really captured my imagination or attention. Therefore, I've been looking back at some games from 2022, and also further back too that I missed, or maybe fell off from. So, Hitman 3, that was a massive title that I always hear a lot about, but never really played very much of the series. So today, I'm going to bring you my thoughts on that one. Plus, also Elden Ring, a game that I loved in parts, but I never really found it got its hooks into me, so I decided to go back. As well as the games that I missed today, I'm going to be looking ahead to one of the big hitters coming later on in June, and that is Diablo 4. This one has the potential to be one of the best games of the year, and today I'm going to delve deeper into all the details that we know about Diablo 4. Well, recently as well, we've had another excellent secret mission added to Destiny 2, so I thought I'd look back at a short history of secrets in Destiny, now, given there's been some real standout gaming moments over the last couple of years. Well, before we get into it today, it'd be great if you could leave a review over there on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the podcast get some more eyes on it. Now, I do have a link in the podcast description or the show notes. So if you like the show and you want to leave a review, I would really, really appreciate it. Plus, I'll read out that review on a future episode of the podcast. Well, this week in video games is also powered by Patreon. You could check out the right tier for you over there at patreon.com forward slash this week in video games. The tier's been revamped into five easy to understand categories. So bronze, silver, gold, platinum, and producer. And tiers only start at $3 a month, which is less than a cup of coffee. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash this week in video games, find the right tier for you today, and you can support the podcast. Well, that is it for my waffly intro today, but let's get into what I've been playing this week. Over the last couple of weeks or so, I've been catching up with some games, including going back to Elden Ring and also Hitman 3. Well, I fell off Elden Ring, and over the last couple of weeks, I decided to go back, and I'm really, really glad I did. And also, Hitman 3, absolutely fantastic game. I always hear great stories of players going into Hitman 3 and playing in that sandbox, so I wanted to check it out for myself. Also, one new game I've been playing is Need for Speed Unbound. This one is a racer from Criterion Games and also EA. And I've really, really been enjoying my time with it so far, so I'm going to bring you my thoughts of that first up in the show. We're talking about Need for Speed Unbound, let's dive into my review of that game. Well, Need for Speed Unbound released towards the end of 2022, almost shadow-dropped with very little marketing. But this racer from Criterion and EA is a whole load of fun, and a worthy contender to the current king of racers, Forza Horizon 5. Well, the last Need for Speed game, Heat, released in 2019 and received a fairly lukewarm reception, so it didn't really make any inroads beyond the Need for Speed faithful audience. And Need for Speed Unbound is a sequel, so building on the positive elements of Heat, 
and contains many modern day racing features like a large open world to explore and get your missions from. Now, it's a strange marketing tactic from EA, given Need for Speed is very, very good. Arguably, Unbound is the best Need for Speed for years. Whether this reflects EA's lack of confidence in the series or something else, this is for sure a return to form for Criterion and also the Need for Speed series. Well, Unbound is all about underground racing, where you travel across an open world map with your mechanic partner in your ears, searching for new races. So you gather prize money and then invest that back into cosmetics for your car. You can play through the game's story mode where you're part of a crew, and it's a tale of living the underground racing life, working as a mechanic plus you've got friends, there's betrayal, and you have to deal with all the consequences of all that has come before. You know, Multiplayer is a separate entity in Unbound, where you can load into the map with 16 other players and take them on in a variety of races that take part in the busy streets and also the side roads of this city. Well, the story campaign takes place over four weeks of in-game time, it's a mixture of races, transporting quote-unquote friends to various safe houses, plus you've got a number of special events which culminate in the grand final races. Now, as you take part in the races, you're going to build up police interest, and often at the end of races, you have to continue to outrun the cops. Over time, your wanted level raises, and that carries over from race to race. Every time you complete a race, you learn some cash, but then you have to go back to a garage or a safe house to bank, and then you can use these to fund enter even more races. Now, given you've got the cops on your tail, this system pushes you to explore the open world, which is a nice side effect of one of the main mechanics in Need for Speed Unbound. Well, the open world is great. It's dense with other cars and people, important events and interactivity through escaping from the cops. Now, you've got to be relatively careful exploring the open world and driving in a semi-responsible manner. For example, I was driving, minding my own business, maybe going a little bit fast, when I crashed head-on into a cop car, that led into a full-blown chase through the city. Need for Speed Unbound has its own visual identity with realism focused on the cars and the environment, and then for the players, characters, NPCs and driving effects and flourishes, well that is all done in a shell-shaded design, you know, flat and colourful in an otherwise realistic driver. It's a really nice combination and the flourishes are particularly good. Lakeshore, the location that we're left to explore via the open world, similar to Chicago in the United States, You've got a busy downtown area, tall buildings, but then also you've got train tracks to cross or drive on if you want to. Plus you've got dense urban areas too, all filled with people. Plus you've got long winding roads in the areas just outside the city where you can really put your foot down. In terms of gameplay, it really is a decent racer, one which I found much easier to control compared to the base controls of Forza Horizon 5. Drifting, braking and controlling around corners is much more forgiving and that led me to easily pick this one up and play it, having much more fun in a shorter amount of time. Now, you've got to be careful about the other cars on the road as you'll inevitably smash into one of them, and then you're going to have to stop and start over a second or two later, which is definitely going to mess around your race ranking. Now, I started out with a Dodge Charger, and so far, it has served me very, very well. well you can customise pretty much every detail of your car, and you're encouraged to when entering new races, as you are a mechanic after all, living that underground lifestyle. You can change the wheels, the suspension, the exhaust, all allowing you to personalise your car to the smallest detail. You know, you can improve the engines and you can really feel the extra power as your car grips the road, controller vibrating in your hands. You know, it's a great feeling racer and for me, easy to pick up and play and to get going nice and quickly. Well, there are definitely improvements that could be made with the game. For example, police AI can be a little bit intense. 
It's generally okay when you've got a low wanted meter, but things ramp up really quickly and they can become a little bit overwhelming. While there are a decent amount of cars, unfortunately, it doesn't really compete with Forza Horizon 5 on that front. You know, this Need for Speed title is definitely one of the best Need for Speeds I've played in some time, but a few small tweaks and improvements could really, really make this title excel. Overall, Need for Speed Unbound is a great open world racer, one that controls really well, it's visually stunning, and it's got its own unique visual style, and the music is really, really good too. Story mode is really entertaining, the online mode works seamlessly and very, very well indeed with little to no lag, and it was easy to get into matches and find other people to play with. The game is also available to try on EA Play's time trial feature, where you can play up to 10 hours of the game for free if you get access to Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. Well, the game was developed by Criterion. It was published by EA. It's available on the Xbox Series S and X PC, also the PlayStation 5, and was originally released on the 29th of November 2022. Well, that is it for the moment for Need for Speed Unbound. Really, really good fun, that game. Wasn't really expecting much going into it, but I came away from the play sessions really, really having a whole load of fun. Well, that is looking back to a game that I missed in 2022. Now, I want to look ahead to a game coming out in 2023. This one has had a really long build-up. This one is part of a fantastic series. This one is Diablo 4. Diablo 4 is definitely one of the most anticipated games of 2023. It's been years in the making, plus it's the latest in a very popular series. Well, today I'm going to look at all the reasons why I'm excited for the latest Diablo game, plus look at why it's one to watch in 2023. Well, Diablo 4 was announced all the way back in 2019 at BlizzCon. It's been in development for some time, but it's still a nice surprise to see that fantastic cinematic trailer. Yeah, we had a few details about returning classes, and then that was it for quite a while. It wasn't until BlizzCon 2021 when we got our next update. Yeah, we were hoping that it might release in 2022. However, it's more than likely that COVID scuppered that plan, as it did with many other plans across the games industry in the last couple of years. Well, players did manage to get their hands on an early build of Diablo 4 in June 2022, when Blizzard had a closed beta. I didn't manage to get to play that time, but hopefully as we move forward towards the release date in June 2023, I'll get into a closed beta or an open beta and we'll be able to report back to you on the gameplay feel. Well, we did get another look at Diablo 4 at the Game Awards in the back half of 2022, with Blizzard on typically great form with their cinematic trailer. You know, Diablo 4 is returning to its dark roots. You know, we had Impalement, and at times it was hard to distinguish between the angels and the demons. So we've got a number of classes coming to Diablo 4, including the Druid, the Barbarian, Sorceress, Rogue, and the Necromancer. I want to take a few moments now to go through each of them. So Druids were one of the first announced classes for Diablo 4. They've got powers related to the earth and wind, and can shapeshift into werebears and werewolf forms. And a big change from the previous games, Druids won't use a skill to transform into a form. Instead, they use a skill that requires a particular form. So they shapeshift into a new form briefly and then back out again. And druids also have summons with their ability to call on wolves and ravens. Well, next up we've got barbarians. So they are the go-to class if you want strength and weapons. Barbarians have access to the arsenal system, which allows them to have four different weapons to swap between. And we can assign different skills to use specific weapons, so you can really customise the barbarian skill and also the loadouts as well. 
Well, Sorceress is our spellcaster class. They can throw lightning, ice, and fire from a distance. Unlike previous iterations of Diablo's wizard class, the Sorceress are focused on more elemental magic. The Sorceress has access to the enchantment system, which allows them to have these six regular skill slots, but also three additional enchantment slots, which translate to passive skills. Then we got Rogue. This is a returning class from the original Diablo game. Rogues are specialists with the bow, but they can also get in up close with daggers and knives. So rogues have the ability to have combo points, which your abilities build up related to attack combinations, meaning you can charge up abilities through multiple hits. They also have a specialization called the Shadow Realm, where they can become immune and drag enemies into another dimension. Finally, we've got the Necromancer. This is the fifth and the final class of Diablo 4. They can control skeletons, and have bone and blood magic at their disposal. They've got weapons too, including a massive scythe. You know, necromancers can also utilize corpses as a resource. They can even trap enemies in something called a bone prison, which allows you to control enemies on the battlefield. Well, as well as different classes, we're going to be able to customize our characters through hundreds of unique armor pieces, as well as change faces and body attributes. This allows you to customize your class so you won't be the same as another character in Diablo 4. We also have a dye system allowing us to change the color of clothes. Facial features will also be editable, which is a new one for the Diablo series. Well, here's a short snippet of what Blizzard had to say about it during BlizzCon 2021. So you're gonna be able to change your face of the character, the hairstyle, the facial hair, and add jewelry, makeup and body markings such as tattoos and body paint. You're gonna be able to change the color values of your character's skin, eyes, hair, facial hair, and body markings. You know, some elements will be class-specific to support the class's unique backgrounds, but many will be shared between classes, allowing for more possibilities to mix and match. Well, in June 2022, we got a much better look at Diablo 4 gameplay. There's a big open world plus public events that will take place where you battle against hordes of demons alongside other players that are in the same instance as you. Well, late in 2022, Diablo 4's game director, Joe Shelley, and general manager Rod Ferguson sat down with IGN for an interview, giving us some more juicy details related to the subclass uniqueness. Well, we started with a couple of classes, and we had some really cool ideas for class mechanics that would be specific to those classes. And it proved to be very compelling, not just in terms of the gameplay of the class, but also if you're playing as a barbarian, maybe you're grouped up with a sorceress, and the sorceress is using a class mechanic. You look at that and go, well, that's a lot of interesting gameplay there that I can check out. We really wanted the classes to shine in their own unique ways. The Necromancer is a core part of Diablo. It's a really cool summoner class. You can get this really cool fancy of being a sort of general of the dead. But there's also a lot of different ways that people play Necromancers. You know, you've got people who enjoy playing the Necromancer in Diablo 2, where they're kind of overseeing the battlefield and their minions doing all the combat. And you've got the more action-packed Necromancer of Diablo 3, where you're really sort of commanding minions more directly, and you've got players as well who want to play this sort of dark caster fantasy, but aren't necessarily attached to the army aspect of it. Well, they also gave some details about skill trees, saying we're going to be able to be hyper-specific with how we respect characters. You know, it will cost resources, but we're going to be able to respect point by point. This is a departure from Diablo 3, which was much more tied to your gear. Well, there's going to be a point in time where I'm going to make up a number, say level 50, and you go like, oh, I'd like to be a different barbarian, but it's too expensive to undo everything that I've done. 
it's actually better for me to roll another Barbarian to start a new one and go fresh. We wanted that notion that with every level that you progress down a character, you're kind of becoming more and more attached to it. You're not just going to go, okay, I'm level 65, time to change my clothes and become a different Barbarian. Well, items are getting a major overhaul, which is much more focused on item strengthening class identities and allowing players to customise deeper and giving us more depth. This is comparable to something between Diablo 2 and Diablo 3. Now, specific changes include weapon speed and other stats that you'll find on all items, and item qualities have also been looked at, with Blizzard wanting players to have a look at other weapons, not just legendary weapons. You know, an exciting element of Diablo 4 is the open world. We've got five regions to explore, and they can be done in any order. And Blizzard say each region is fraught with dangers of their own kind, and this was lead environment artist Matt McDade back in 2022. Yeah, many routes and hidden corners to uncover. How you choose to make your way through the vast open world is up to you. The art and the design team have constructed a contiguous world that you can roam from coast to coast or high up in the glacial ridges. Now, for the environment art team, we want to ensure that each handcrafted location is distinct and immersive. Well, the game is going to ship with cross-play multiplayer, so players from PlayStation, Xbox and PC, they're all going to be able to play with each other. This is an always online game, and being able to play with everyone on all platforms is really, really going to make the difference. So dungeons are going to be instants for solo and parties of players, and then in the overworld you're going to see other players, world events that are going to bring players together, and you'll be able to get mounts to ride across large distances. Difficulty can be set when you enter a dungeon, although when you're above ground the difficulty is going to scale to your level. You know, I think there's loads to be excited about when it comes to Diablo 4, I definitely recommend checking out some video previews and seeing the gameplay, and then, when you can get your hands on the game, I would recommend you do it as soon as possible. And if we get details of an open beta, I'll definitely be the first to let you know. Well that is it for now for Diablo 4 and a roundup of everything that we know so far. I am really, really looking forward to this game, and it's coming out in June 2023. Well that is it for now for looking ahead to Diablo 4, but next up I'm going to go backwards I'm going to go back to 2021, and this was one of the best games of 2021. I missed out on it, and because we've got a little bit of a slow period at the moment with new releases, I've gone back to this game, and this one is Hitman 3. If you're in the know with Hitman, then you know it's one of the best series out there. You know, the Hitman series creates great moments each mission has a collection of scripted and freeform systems that create tense moments, present you intricate puzzles, and allow us as the player to create often hilarious and perilous situations. The general idea with Hitman levels is you play them over and over, so you get to know every minute detail, which allows you to set off a chain of events like dominoes culminating in the death of a target and you not getting caught. You could argue that Hitman 3 is just more Hitman, on the surface, the gameplay looks the same, although we are treated to a few quality of life improvements, and also, of course, the graphical upgrades as well. Hitman 3 continues to produce excellent mission designs, which is no easy task considering the high bar of the previous levels. Much of the stealth, the way you interact with the world and enemy AI remains the same, and Hitman 3 manages to elevate the experience and demonstrate why it feels so good when all the systems click into place. Your objective in each of the locations or the missions is to find a way to eliminate your target and then escape without getting caught. 
This can be done in a variety of ways, knocking enemies out, hiding their bodies and stealing their clothes. The latter point can be important because where you go in the levels depends on what you're wearing. So if you can get yourself some new clothes that allow you to go into and potentially escape through, for example, a restricted area, then all the better. Yeah, some enemies are smarter than others and will see through your tricks or your disguises, so those enemies are best avoided. Now, Agent 47 has an ability called Instinct, which allows us to see through walls and also see people and interactive objects. Well, as well as eliminate your targets, first of all, you've got to gather information that's going to help you get close to your target. So you can do it the old-fashioned way, for example, with a gun, or you can strangle somebody, but a gun is going to make noise, and drawing attention to yourself is not a good idea as a hitman. You might want to try something a little bit more elaborate, like electrocute someone via a power cable in a puddle on the ground. The more stealthy the kill, and the less danger you put non-targets in, the better score you're going to get. Each level is full of challenges, and you're going to be encouraged to remove your targets through an ever-increasing creative number of ways. And the more challenges you compete, the more level opens up, and that includes more starting locations and also different loadouts as well. Well, Hitman 3 takes it up a level in terms of storytelling, with levels telling stories that fit into the overall narrative of the Hitman series. Well, the early games tended to be isolated and didn't really fit together in the larger narrative. Now, IO Interactive have definitely done a better job this time round with weaving an overarching story together. You know, back in Hitman 1 and 2, Agent 47 and his contact Diana Burwood realised they were unwittingly taken part in a war against the Shadow Client, someone who was manipulating them through various contracts via Providence, an Illuminati-like organisation full of the super-rich. You know, in Hitman 3, Agent 47 and Burwood are in all-out war against the Providence, and this has the effect of making the missions feel much more impactful. As you progress through the game, the characters and the enemies you eliminate, well, it all has consequences for the story, and that means they start to fight back against Agent 47. Well, there's an excellent mission, which follows a similar script to the movie Knives Out. Set in Dartmoor, England, you're trying to assassinate a target in a huge mansion. Well, you're planning a murder, then another murder takes place at the same time, and you can even jump into the role of a detective to help solve the other murder. While you're helping out solve this other murder, you're all the time gathering clues and information related to your real target. You know, it all feels like playing another game inside of Hitman, which goes to show how powerful the game is and how flexible it can be playing these two similar roles at the same time. Plus, IO Interactive pull it off wonderfully well, demonstrating their mastery of the genre. So if I was going to give you a slight drawback with Hitman 3, you could argue the game feels smaller than its predecessor, Hitman 2. Hitman 3 is streamlined with less bloat, whereas Hitman 2 contains some more experimental content that is gone in Hitman 3 and IO Interactive. They're just focusing on the content that they know their players love, which makes a lot of sense for the core Hitman audience. The recent Hitman games since 2016 have done a great job with their post-release content, so DLC, location packs, target missions... Now, Hitman 3 is no different with the Seven Deadly Sins DLC, with each mission named after a sin like greed, pride, and lust, etc, etc. Well, Hitman 3 does introduce interesting new ideas into the mix, however, it doesn't fundamentally change the way that we play Hitman. The brilliance of Hitman 3 is to provide you with a sandbox which you can perfect your assassinations. So if you've played the Hitman series before, it's highly likely you'll get more out of the game. 
Well, on that note, IO Interactive did announce they're going to merge all of the Hitman experiences all together in one game called Hitman, the World of Assassination. Hitman 3 is going to get an update and will include all content from Hitman 1 and 2. Previously, it was confusing for the audience to know which copy to buy and what content was included. And IO Interactive aims to simplify the purchasing of Hitman into a single base game called The World of Assassination. Hitman 3 feels like the culmination of all the hard work gone into Hitman 1 and 2. IO Interactive inject new creativity into the game, providing another set of excellent levels. Plus, now owners of Hitman 3 are going to get this free upgrade to World of Assassination, so if you haven't jumped into Hitman before, now is a perfect time to do so. Well, the game was developed and published by IO Interactive. It's available on the PlayStation 5, the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Nintendo Switch, Xbox Series S and X, and also the PC2. It was originally released on January 2021. Well, that is it for my review of Hitman 3. Absolutely excellent game. And honestly, this sandbox is one of the best sandboxes I've played with in gaming. It's so much fun. Really, really surprising. And to be honest, I'm gutted it took me as long to get to this game. Really, really had a lot of fun with it and can definitely see myself going back time and time again. Well, that is it for now for Hitman 3, but next up, let's have a look at the all-platform charts. At number 10 this week, we got New Super Mario Bros. U. That is up six places from last week's number 16. At number 9, holding steady, it's Minecraft. At number 8, also holding steady, it's Animal Crossing New Horizons. At number 7, also holding steady, it's Pokemon Scarlet. And then at number 6, you guessed it, holding steady, it is Nintendo Switch Sports. Still in at number 5, it's Pokemon Violet. Then at number 4, it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, down one place from last week's number 3. At number 3, it's Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, up one place from last week's number 4. At number 2, it's FIFA 23, that is holding steady at number 2, and still in at number 1, it's God of War Ragnarok. So congrats to Sony Santa Monica, absolutely fantastic game. It was in my Game of the Year list, which you can go and check out on the YouTube channel. God of War Ragnarok, an absolute triumph in uh, video game design, really, really good stuff. So if you haven't played it yet, I definitely recommend going to play God of War Ragnarok. Well, that is it for now for the all-platform charts, but next up, I went back to one of the best games of 2022. This is a game I played when it came out, although I fell off after about a month of playing the game, so I always wanted to go back, but other games got in the way. Well, now it was finally time to go back into this world. It's finally time to go back to Elden Ring. Elden Ring is arguably one of the best games of the last five years, maybe even ten years, taking that open world to the next level, adapting the Souls-like gameplay to a massive, open and flexible environment. Elden Ring was many people's and outlets game of the year in 2022. However, I fell off the game and I decided to go back to Elden Ring and today I'm going to let you know how I got on. I'm sad to say that when I originally played Elden Ring, I never made it out of Limgrave. For those who don't know, this is the starting area of the game. It's not small by any means. I mean, I spent about 15 hours running around there. Limgrave itself could easily be the same size as some other games. It's got a variety of enemies, caves, NPCs, giants. It's even got a dragon and a whole load of secrets to discover. Now, I really, really enjoyed Elden Ring when I played it. However, I just wasn't really very good at it. 
I kept dying over and over again. It felt like I was hitting my head against a brick wall. I played it for about 15 hours, and then unfortunately, you know, other games just came along and I moved on, always with the intention of going back to Elden Ring, but I didn't manage it until recently. So I am not a Souls expert by any means. I've played through parts of Sekiro, Dark Souls, Demon Souls, but none of them ever really click with me like other games have. You know, I really want to love these games, but I never appear to have the time to dedicate to get good at these games. In terms of my gaming habits, I play a wide variety of games, and I really feel like you need to dedicate yourself to Souls games, learn enemy patterns, really stick with it, and not get distracted. I do admit I throw my hands up, that is down to me, it's a me problem, it's definitely not a problem with Elden Ring. You know, while I only played about 15 hours when I first played, I did achieve a few minor wins. First of all, I got my hands on the Twin Blade, which is still one of my favourite weapons to use given its speed. I made my way through the Aghil Lake and met Patches. I got Margit's Shackle in prep for the battle against Margit. I beat the Demi-Human Chief to get my starter staff, and also faced off against Margit. Although Margit did hand my ass back to me on more than one occasion, on more than a dozen occasions I think, so I decided to go back into Limgrave and level up as much as possible. And that is where I fell off. Now, best intentions and all that. And then along came other games to play. And that was the end of my first Elden Ring journey. Since then, I really tried hard to avoid spoilers for Elden Ring. One thing that was really hard to avoid was the enthusiasm related to the coverage of the game. I remember Dan Tack, when he was back at Game Informer, talking about their preview and the time that they had with the game. Absolutely glowing reports and you simply knew this was going to be a special game. Now, I follow the Destiny Community podcast. You know, they mainly cover Destiny in their primary podcast. However, they've got another podcast called SideQuest, which covers other games. I think SideQuest was entirely taken over for about three months talking about Elden Ring after the game came out, and it was such a joy to listen to Tefty, Miss 5000 Watson, Briar talk about their love for Elden Ring. But ultimately, I felt left out. You know, I looked at my own playtime and wondered what was wrong with me. I didn't know why Elden Ring didn't click with me or why I wasn't finding time to play it. I felt like every time that I loaded up the game, it was beating me back and it felt like it was a very negative experience. But I'm happy to report that has all changed over the last couple of weeks. Well, I jumped back into Elden Ring and managed to find my groove in exploration and combat and now I feel like I'm having a much better time than I previously did. I found my way to the third church of Marika, where I found a portal, went through it and found a decent rune farming location to help me level up quickly. My previous rune farming location had been in Limgrave with the giants on the field, and that was pretty dangerous and also time consuming, and I ended up dying more than collecting runes. I found this new location, the Bestial Sanctum, in Kaelid. I also found Sorcerer Selin near Waypoint Ruins in Limgrave, which has opened me up to the world of magic. Now, one of these areas that I've been struggling with is where to put my upgrade points and into which stats. I started putting in my upgrades into health so I could survive longer in a fight. And then I picked up the twin blade and needed a reasonable amount of dexterity. So I switched and started upgrading that stat. Now I'm getting into magic, intelligence and faith seem to be very important. So I haven't really had a clear idea in my mind about what type of character that I want to be in Elden Ring. Therefore, I haven't focused my stats in a particular area. Well, I'm level 28 now, and that means I still have a way to go, and I can still choose my path, but it's something that I really struggled with from the start, not really knowing which stats to prioritise. 
Well, some good news to end with before we stop talking about Elden Ring. Now, I went back to Margit at level 27 and much more adept at battle, and I finally beat him. I definitely let out an audible cheer when I did beat him. I do have to be careful because I do tend to play very early in the morning and I don't want to wake up the whole family. But it felt good and it only strengthens my newly found bond with the game. Elden Ring has managed to get its hooks into me and this time I look forward to coming back and getting into that world once again. Well that's it for now for my returning adventures to Elden Ring. Really, really enjoying myself and I might bring you an update as I make my way through. I do plan to continue playing Elden Ring and I'll let you know how I get on. Well, next up, I want to go back to a game close to my heart. I talk about it most weeks on the podcast. I'm going to go back to Destiny 2. So recently, we had a new secret mission added to Destiny 2. Really, really good fun. And I thought I'd go back and look at a short history of secrets in Destiny 2, because that is one of the unique elements of Destiny 2. It's not just a shooter where you shoot aliens in the face or shoot other players. Actually, there's really intricate puzzles and some really, really good secrets. So I wanted to bring you a short history of all the secrets in Destiny 2. So let's go over to that now. Destiny 2 has a rich history of secrets in the game, and this season, Season of the Seraph, well, that's been no different with the introduction of Operation Seraph Shield. That is an exotic mission where we go to space, work our way through the Seraph space station, and get our hands on the exotic pulse rifle, the Revision Zero. Well, today I want to have a look at one of the features of Destiny 2 that makes it magic for me, and also many other people, and that is the secrets the game hides and wants you to find. Secrets can range from hidden items that you have to find through a series of clues or huge, expansive exotic missions, where one day we find a random portal on a planet or a moon and get sent into a rock-solid timed mission with an exotic prize at the end. Secrets, large and small, have been in Destiny 2 since the game released, and they are one of the unique facets of the game that make Destiny 2 so special. Well, without further delay, let's have a look back at some of the best secrets we've had in Destiny 2. Well, first up, I want to talk about the Whisper mission. So this was originally released during the Warmind expansion, and we had to kill a certain taken enemy on Io, and this enemy would only spawn very occasionally, maybe once or twice per hour. Upon killing this enemy, a portal would appear on Io, and when we went through the portal, a timer would start counting down from 20 minutes. We'd then have to traverse through a dark and deadly location, taking on a series of jumping puzzles and navigating this claustrophobic space, which would culminate in a battle against the Taken and some bosses from Destiny's past. Now, if you beat the mission in under 20 minutes, we get the exotic sniper rifle, Whisper of the Worm, as a prize, and that was a reprise weapon from the original Destiny. So this is my go-to secret when someone talks about the secrets in Destiny 2. I remember I was watching T-Rex at the time, a world's first King's Fall raider who had gone to be a developer at Bungie. I remember the excitement of discovering the portal, the strangeness of the environment, and the difficulty of the challenge. There was even a section in the Whisper mission, there was even a section in the Whisper mission that looked like you could see through to the Vault of Glass through a portal. The Vault of Glass was the original raid in Destiny itself, full of secrets and mystery. And in there, there was a mystery portal, and now we were standing on the other side of the portal, looking back into the Vault of Glass. Next up, we've got Niobe Labs. This was released during Season of the Forge. Actually, at the time, I was taking a break from Destiny, and this was the first time they were introduced properly to the Black Armory. Niobe Labs was a bunker where you could find various symbols. 
You need to certain weapons to complete the task, and you have to make your way through seven waves of enemies. You have to perform specific actions related to the symbols at the start of a wave, and if you made a mistake, you had to start all over again. It all led to the opening of the Burgusia Forge, which Bungie had to open then for everybody, given the nature of the puzzle and the progress within the community. So while it was a good iteration, I think many in the Destiny community felt Niobe Labs didn't quite hit the mark, but it was a sign of other puzzles to come. Well, next up, we've got many people's favourite, and this is the Zero Hour mission. Zero Hour was the next exotic time mission, similar to the Whisper mission, and this time we got the Outbreak Perfected, another returning exotic weapon from the original Destiny, but a coveted exotic pulse rifle nonetheless. To get access to this mission, you had to get your hands on the Fallen Transponder, and then you had to collect six nodes. We met Mithrax, the Forsaken, and he asked us to take care of some Fallen in the Old Tower. This was another timed mission, and another tough one too, with only 20 minutes to complete the whole thing. So we got to revisit parts of the old tower, the shared social space from Destiny 1, and battled through tough fights with the Fallen. We had Mithrax and Eremis, they were involved, and they would actually return later in Destiny 2, in Beyond Light, to help continue the story of the Fallen. Well next up we've got my second favourite secret in the history of Destiny, and this one is the Corridors of Time. The Corridors of Time was one of the most complex and elaborate community puzzles that we've seen in Destiny 2. So during Season of the Dawn, we'd work with Osiris to open up the Corridors of Time, and we'd eventually save the legendary Titan, Saint-14. So once we'd saved Saint-14, we could freely explore the Corridors of Time and see what other secrets they held. Well, the Corridors of Time were like a honeycomb structure. You would enter an area shaped like a hexagon, and then you would take one of the six paths out of the room. Take the right path through the entire area and eventually you would end up at a location with a few question marks prompting you. You could look down and you could see a pattern through a glass floor. Well, you took a picture of this pattern and then the community aggregated all of this data into huge spreadsheets, forming a new huge map out of the individual Guardian hexagons. This was a massive community effort with all players getting together. You know, you had raid secrets, streamers, players... Guardians from all over the planet have been working together and aggregating data, slowly putting together this massive community map. And eventually, the final map was put together. This huge new map revealed a 30-symbol code, which had to be input into the Corridors of Time perfectly when you read it from left to right. And this all led us to finding out that at that final location, there was a grave site in this timeline, and Saint-14 was given a speech saying how... We were his mentor, and we were buried with our favourite weapon. And yes, we found our own grave in the future. Well, this led to the discovery of Bastion, the exotic fusion rifle, and though fans were convinced at the time this would lead to an exotic sword, now ultimately they were disappointed by the fusion rifle, even though it would go on to become an absolute beast in PvP. Now, for me, this is only second to the Whisper mission, and is one of the best collective experiences I can remember within the Destiny community, you know, led by the Raid Secrets crew, and that is a fantastic subreddit. If you don't know about Raid Secrets, definitely go over to Reddit and search up Raid Secrets. Really, really fantastic bunch of people. So this was fascinating to watch and also take part in, plus the corridors of time and the lore element, really, really unique when looking back at the secrets of Destiny 2. Well, next up for the secrets, we've got the Presage mission, so Presage arrived in Season of Chosen, and again, we were introduced through a quirk in some existing content similar to that portal found on Io. 
So we'd run through the arms dealer strike, which we'd had in the game for years, and all of a sudden a new door opened up with a passage that we'd never seen before. This kicked off a whole bunch of excitement from the community as a new secret was available in the game. Presage was a creepy, horror-like experience in Destiny 2, which is fairly unique for the series. We went aboard a ship in space where Callus, the Cabal Emperor, had been experimenting with various subjects. It mixed horror gameplay with big set-piece battles, plus the lore was excellent as well with the discovery of the Crown of Sorrows after weeks of running through the mission. As a reward, we got the Dead Man's Tail, an exotic scout rifle from the Tex Mechanica Foundry, which again would go on to become a beast and a nuisance in PvP for years. So this was a new experiment in terms of exotic weapons in the game as well, one with random perks similar to Hawkmoon, which we'd seen return in the previous season. Ultimately, Presage felt like an experiment that led us to the derelict Leviathan in Season of the Haunted, and that was of course this. And that was of course in mid-2022. So it is a shame that Presage went away with the Witch Queen, given the amount of time and resources that must go into creating a mission like that. Hopefully we're going to see it one day again in Destiny 2. Well that brings us up to date with Operation Seraph Shield, and I want to go to that one now, and that's the recent one which kicked off my journey delving back into the secrets of Destiny 2. So Operation Seraph Shield is the latest exotic mission that Bungie has put into the game. So their marketing of these things has changed somewhat over the years. These days we've got a heads up from Bungie that these missions are coming. This mission became available during Season of the Seraph and was part of the weekly story where we travel up into space, take on a mission either solo or with a fire team, and it's got similar mechanics to the Deepstone Crypt raid where you have to get different buffs to interact with terminals in the game, as well as shoot the panels on the wall. You know, the mission itself is a series of rooms where you have to take on enemies coupled with the big set pieces and some nasty puzzles, including the now infamous microwave room where you've got to correctly guess the right levers to pull, otherwise you get fried. There's a great moment where you have to surrender and the Fallen take you on board their ship, only for your weapons to be returned to you a moment later and you fight your way through the ship and then out into space. You know, the first time running through the mission you get access to Revision Zero, a new exotic scout rifle, then week after week you run through the mission again to get the upgrades to the catalysts, allowing improving the stats of the scout rifle over time, plus you open up different perks as well. You know, coupled with the regular mission there's also secrets to find, which include a decent proportion of the secret robotic nodes you have to shoot with Revision Zero. So there's 50 nodes in the game in total found on Europa, the Moon, Heist Battlegrounds and also Operation Seraph Shield. So shoot all 50 and you're going to get access to a secret door about two thirds of the way through Operation Seraph Shield. Make your way through that secret door and you'll find a portal which will transport you to a jumping puzzle location similar to that Whisper mission and then you make your way through to the end and you'll find a mechanical dog. Which is quite a nice find, although slightly odd when it comes to the lore. Now, finding 50 nodes in the game, it was a great treasure hunt and another example of Bungie at their very best. Well there has been some chatter in the Destiny community related to secrets and also the lack of secrets recently in the game prior to Operation Serve Shield. Players have been wondering where the secret missions are gone as it felt like a good amount of time had passed since we last saw one. Now here is what Bungie had to say on the matter. Well we want to take a moment to address the community's feedback around secrets in Destiny 2 but before we get started, if you take one thing away from this communication, let it be that people working on Destiny 2 believe that secrets are an important part of the franchise and we're dedicated to delivering secret experiences, both small and large, 
throughout the coming year. First and foremost, let us address the Reddit AMA about the difficulty of encrypting content that brought this conversation to a head. Data mining and leaks are not a unique problem to Destiny 2. Every live game deals with this issue because it's one of the most challenging engineering problems in games today. Well, that said, our communication was misinterpreted to mean that we are no longer building secret experiences, which is false. We've delivered hidden and secret story beats and content this year, and will continue to do so next year. For some in the community, secrets have come to mean either a secret mission or a puzzle. It's understandable that the community is hungry for more content, as interpreting any hidden thing we do as a signpost of something bigger to come. Just understand that we'll never openly reveal a secret mission or a puzzle before it goes live, and that although we're intentionally hiding things for you to discover in every release, not every secret can become something as big as a mission or a puzzle. You know, looking back at the past year, The Witch Queen was a release containing a fair share of secrets, and experiences on the throne world were directly influenced by content like secret missions and dungeons. Additionally, as many of you have noticed, we've been layering teases and secrets about future content throughout our stories, lore entries, and also the world building leading up to Lightfall. However, we know that you want more. We know that we haven't released a secret mission that scratches that same itch as Presage, Zero Hour, or The Whisper this year. Those missions were some of the most challenging content for our teams to build, which is why we've only released at most one secret mission within a 12-month period. But as we've developed our plans leading to Lightfall and beyond, I want to reassure you that the community feedback is heard loud and clear, and putting more secrets into Destiny 2 is an initiative our teams have been working on for months before this conversation recently came to a head. Some secrets are going to be small, some are going to be large, some will come next year, and some are right around the corner. But I promise you, we've got a talented group of people who love this type of content and who knows what it means for the community to discover and experience it. Well, I don't know about you, that is really, really exciting there from Bungie. You know, not everything is going to be as big as a Whisper mission, so I'm really, really looking forward to the future. Well, let me know what you think about the secret of Destiny 2. You can contact me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast down there in the comments, or you can email me at podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com. You know, what do you want to see in the future, and what are your hopes about secrets in the game? Do you want to see more Whisper-style missions? You know, did you enjoy the more subtle Witch Queen-style secrets? Let me know on Twitter, email, or on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames. Well, that is it for now for a brief history of secrets in Destiny 2. But next up, let's have a look what we've got coming out in the next few weeks. Okay, next few weeks, the games are ramping up. So first of all, we've got Gigantosaurus, Dino Kart. So that's on PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. That is coming January the 17th. Then on January the 19th, we've got a few games. We've got a Space for the Unbound, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. We've got Colossal Cave, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, Switch and PC. We've got Persona 4 Golden, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, and Switch. Also on the 19th, Shin Megami Tensei Persona 3 Portable. That is on Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One. Then on the 20th, we've got Fire Emblem Engage. That is coming to Nintendo Switch. Then, also on the 20th, we have Monster Hunter Rise. That's coming to PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, and Xbox One. Also coming to Xbox Game Pass, that one. 
We've got Pocket Card Jockey, Ride On. That is coming to iOS. That is on January the 20th. Then on the 24th of January, got a few more games. Forspoken, PS5 and PC. We've got Risen, that's PS4, Xbox One and Switch. And World War Z, that's PS5 and Xbox Series S and X. Then on the 26th of January, we've got Hitman World of Assassination. I mentioned that before on the episode. That's PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. And then we've got the Dead Space Remake. That is coming on January the 27th. And that is coming out on the PS5, Xbox Series S and X, and also the PC too. Well, a few games I'm looking forward to there. We've got loads of Persona games coming to the Xbox. I think a lot of stuff is coming out on Xbox Game Pass, so quite a lot to look forward to there. Fire Emblem Engage. That is coming to Nintendo Switch. That's going to be a really interesting one to look out for. Forspoken. I know some people are looking forward to that. I'm kind of a little bit cool on Forspoken now after playing that demo and not really getting on with it. And then, of course, we've got Dead Space Remake. That is coming on January the 27th. That is going to be really, really good fun. Well, that is it for this week's episode. And if you want to get involved in the show, get in contact through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash this week in video games, or on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast, or you can email me at podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com. Loads of ways, or you can hit me up down in the comments. Don't really mind how you get in contact. We'd really, really love to hear from you. I would love to put your voice on the next episode of the podcast. Well, as always, thank you so much for watching or for listening. So for more This Week in Video Games content like this, you can like, subscribe on YouTube, and also share with a friend. You can follow me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing, it would really help me out. Otherwise, you can check out the other podcasts in the feed. Well, thanks again, and I'll see you soon.